This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Well, we're here for one purpose and one purpose only. It is all about Jesus, to elevate Him and make Him known. And it is our privilege to dive into his word. Y'all have heard the story of Hansel and Gretel, right? The whole breadcrumbs thing. Did you know the breadcrumbs thing that they're known for isn't even how the story goes? Because they try the breadcrumbs, but the birds eat them up. So instead they use these white rocks out of their garden, which are awesome because they can see them at night because the moon reflects off of them. I think that's really cool. One of the things that we're going to do tonight is we're going to search for Jesus. We've been talking about who God is. We've been talking about what the word of God is. We talked about who man is. And now we're going to talk about who is Jesus. And we're going to follow a trail of glowing stones through scripture and watch it build of of who this coming Messiah is and how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that. And there's many, many different trails you can take through Scripture, and they all point to Jesus. So what is Scripture? It is God's necessary, clear, sufficient, authoritative, and beautiful self-revelation. Who is God? God is the eternal, triune, holy, sovereign creator of all that is, seen and unseen, and he is the source of life. Last week, Elijah took on who is man, man, is creations of God made to glorify him. We corrupted ourselves with sin, but we are given the opportunity to be justified by the sacrifice of Jesus. So who is Jesus? And that's where we're going to pick up tonight. And I love this. I love looking to see, y'all, the Bible is not one book that is right because the book says it's right. Therefore, it's right because it says it's right in this perpetual circle. That's a, that's a, a fallacy, an argument fallacy. No, the Bible is 66 books of 40 plus authors and all these authors are independently prophesying on behalf of God and somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit, through a God that is bigger and higher than man, they all attest to one God with common purposes and they each create puzzle pieces that fit together into the unified book of scripture and they create this puzzle that reveals who Jesus is. That's the Bible. It's not one author. It's many. It's many that God used to build his word. And so what we're going to do is look through many authors and see how each one of them added puzzle pieces to who Jesus is. And we could be here all night, but I'm going to spare you that really awesome adventure and we'll sort of shrink it down a little bit. We're looking at Jesus. Who is Jesus? Psalm 2, 7 through 8, very simple. The writer says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I got excited about tonight's message because I had always wondered, okay, everything in the New Testament stands on the foundation of the Old Testament. So where in the Old Testament do we see God's son? Like we can see a triune God. There are verses and scriptures and, and different types and metaphors that show a God who is father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. But I was like, where do we see that Son in the Old Testament? And we get to trace that a little bit tonight. Jesus is God's Son. We're going to start in Genesis, right at the beginning. Sin has entered God's creation. Like Elijah talked about last week, man was created as God's signature on the beautiful creation, on his artwork. And a signature has no value unto itself. The signature points to the artist. We're not valuable in and of ourselves. We're valuable because of who we point to. We're pointing to our creator. We're pointing to God. But sin came by our own desires. And through this tempter, that snake, tips this domino, this first domino into sin. And it takes only one generation to go from don't eat the fruit and they sin. One generation later, we have an image bearer of God murdering an image bearer of God. One generation. And sin has already plummeted the human creature to murder. And it'll only be another generation or so until there's another murder. Think about that. If we are God's signatures on creation and we're meant to point to God, consider what the first murder meant. An image bearer of God murdering. What a corruption of the image of God. What what twistedness is this that would be so abhorrent and against the creator, the one who holds all of life? An image bearer of God murdering an image bearer of God. Sin is in the world and it's corrupting everything. And yet God doesn't leave us where where we are. Right there at the beginning, in the curse to that serpent, that tempter, that ancient tempter, God says this, I will put enmity. And if this is your first time hearing the word enmity, it just means this deep hatred and conflict. I'm going to put hatred and conflict between you and the woman. Talking about Eve between your offspring and her offspring. He, this enigmatic, this mysterious he, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. You're going to deal out a blow to this coming he. But while your blow is not mortal, his blow will be to your head. It will be a crushing blow to you. A savior is coming who's going to defeat evil brought into God's creation And that Savior will achieve a lethal blow to the tempter, but not before receiving a less than lethal blow to himself. And as you follow scripture, you can see in Genesis 4.25 that this promise to Eve's offspring, so a descendant of Eve, one of her children's children's children, well, then every time that they have multiple kids in a family, you've got to ask the question, well, which kid is going to receive this promise? Of this, this coming one, this coming he who will crush evil. Well, Adam and Eve have three sons. Cain killed Abel. And then it says that Seth replaced Abel. So it's going to come through Seth. Then you get down to Noah. Noah has three sons in Genesis 9.26. And it's going to be Shem through Shem's line. And Noah's three sons repopulate the earth after the big flood. And so it's going to be through Shem's line that this promise goes. Then it's going to land Genesis 12.1-3 in Abraham. That God calls Abraham out and says, it's going to be your family. And he expands this promise. Not only will this coming he defeat sin and crush the tempter, this he is going to have impact worldwide. Not just on one family, but through this one family, this coming Savior will have worldwide impact. Then in Genesis 49, 
Abraham has the son Isaac who receives the blessing. Isaac, Jacob, but Jacob has 12 sons. Man, who's going to come through? Who is this, this promised seed, this descendant going to weave its way through? And you get to Genesis 49 and it's going to come through Judah. But the promise expands It's no longer just a savior that's going to crush the head of the tempter. It's no longer a savior that's going to impact all the world. The savior is going to be a royal king of the line of Judah. And he's called a cub, a lion cub, which is why Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so it's going to come through a king who's going to be a savior, who's going to crush sin. And it's going to be through a descendant of this family of Judah. Then you get to Deuteronomy 18. And Moses is about to die. And every time Moses steps away for a minute, everyone plunges into sin and idolatry. In fact, in this part in Deuteronomy 18, God is saying, way too many times you guys are turning to witchcraft and sorcerers to try to find out what to do. But instead, listen to Moses, but there will come a time that I'm going to send a prophet like Moses, listen to him. And anyone who doesn't listen to him, I'm going to hold it accountable. I'm going to hold them accountable. So a prophet like Moses, well, who is Moses? Moses saved them out of Egypt. He's a rescuer from bondage, from slavery. Who is Moses? He operated as a priest. He was the intercessor between God's people and God himself. He stood in the presence of God. Who is Moses? He was a judge who would hear out court cases and make decisions between the people on behalf of God. Who is Moses? He functioned as a prophet, speaking the very words of God to God's people. Who is Moses? He operated as a king, keeping this this kingly theme going. And so this coming one, this this mysterious he who's going to defeat evil, is going to be a savior from bondage. He's going to be royal. He'll be a king. He's going to function as a prophet, a priest, a judge. And then we come to Psalm 2, 7 through 8. Now let's slow down a little bit. This is written about David initially. I will tell of the decree, the Lord, talking about God, almighty God, said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, there's two things going on here. The way God works so beautifully is when he works in prophecies, often his prophecies are layered. They're like cakes. And you can see the top layer is to David. And God says, David, you're my son. God called David a man after his own heart, but there's more here. It looks beyond David because David never ruled the whole world. It looks beyond him. Ask of me and I will give the nations to you. But it's going to become even deeper. Go to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. God is speaking directly to David. And this is where the rubber really starts meeting the road. God speaks to David, I will raise up your offspring. There's that word offspring again. Your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Remember that layered cake? The top layer is, this is talking about Solomon. Solomon will build God a house, a temple. But there's more going on here because this is talking about an eternal, everlasting kingdom. Solomon didn't have an eternal kingdom. 
Solomon built a house. He built a physical house. But Jewish tradition looks at this and they see that it looks beyond David to a coming one. Someone who's going to have an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. And he's not going to just build a physical house. This house is going to be something that's greater than something that can be torn down by enemies. Something that's greater than just having four walls. This is a hint that this coming one is going to be more than a man if he's going to have an eternal kingdom. Isaiah 7.14, we get another one of those white stones. This is now generations past David, past Solomon. And a prophet is speaking to David's descendant named Ahaz. And he was two-faced, if ever there was. And God speaks to him and says, I'm going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. What? What? A virgin is going to have a baby and his name's going to be Emmanuel, meaning God with us? What does that mean? Again, we have a layered cake. To Ahaz, this means like right now, there's going to be a, there's going to be a child born. And before this child reaches a certain age, your enemies are going to be defeated. And there is a child born, but not by a virgin. So it looks to this situation, but there's this another layer that looks beyond Ahaz. Further down the road, and whoever this is, this mysterious he, the one who's going to be king, the one who's going to defeat sin and death, the one that's going to be a prophet, a priest, a king, and a judge, this one is going to be born in a miraculous way, a way that bends physics and breaks them, a way that only a creator God can do. A creator God that can make man from dirt can bring his son through a virgin. And then God speaks through Daniel to make concrete this prophecy. This idea of God with us. This one who's going to be God's son. Divine. Daniel opens this up. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of Man. Not son of God, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. Who's the ancient of days? The eternal one. Everlasting to everlasting. This is God himself. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, talking about the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we have this one who is not just the son of God, but he's also the son of man. Born of a physical human woman, kind of son of God. But something is unique about him. The only way that he can have an eternal, everlasting kingdom is if he himself is eternal which can only be applied to one entity, and that's God himself. We have this interesting dichotomy between God himself is coming and he'll come as a son of man. Matthew 20, and we pick up in a story that we all hear every year at Christmas time. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Y'all know what Jesus means? It means Yahweh God saves. This is a critical name. This is a throwback to all of those messianic prophecies. This is going back to the beginning of time. Yahweh God saves. He'll be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All the way back to Genesis 3. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And this child, this mysterious he, who will be born miraculously through a virgin, will be God in flesh, son of God, son of man, simultaneously. Truly God and truly man. The New Testament writers, the apostles are confronted with this idea. This God who they know is one God and one God only. And Jesus comes on the scene and declares himself as God's son and does miracles that only God can do. And he fulfills prophecies that only God can fulfill. And he raises himself from the dead, which only God can do. And they're confronted with this reality that God is one. And this guy declares himself to be the son of God. What does this mean? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, their minds are opened to understanding the scriptures. Some of the scriptures that we've looked at briefly tonight. And here are a few things that maybe we overlook. They're way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. It says that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Whoa. God was present in a way that walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. We have this reoccurring angel of the Lord. Very fun study. Just Google all the times, find a concordance, all the times that there is the angel of the Lord and look at the characteristics of this, this interesting person of the Old Testament who pops in and he's sent by God and yet worshiped as God. Who has attributes of God. It's so interesting And then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you have this fourth man in the fire with them. And you have all these messianic prophecies that are looking forward to this coming Messiah. Daniel talks about what year the Messiah will be cut off and die. And if you figure out the Jewish calendar, boom, there you go. Malachi talks about what city he'll be born in. Isaiah talks about how he'll die. And that he would resurrect again. We have all of these prophecies and they all point and they're woven together and they coincide in only one human that ever lived who is not just truly human, but also truly God. This was Jesus. And the gospel writers, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who saw Jesus, saw his miracles, watched his death, encountered him after his resurrection, who searched the scriptures, they write about Jesus things like, John 1, in the very beginning, quoting Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was both with God and the Word was God. Colossians 1.15, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and in him all things consist.
at Jesus' baptism, what does God say? They hear a voice from heaven as the Holy Spirit is descending on Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my son. Listen to him, which is an echo of Deuteronomy 18 from the Moses prophecy. Listen to him. God has woven all these things, these trails of white stones for us to follow, and they land in one place. All roads lead to Jesus. And Jesus confronts the disciples. Where are they at? Matthew 16, 15 through 17. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, which is Greek for Messiah, the son of the living God. Bing, a light bulb had gone on for him. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Listen to what Paul writes about Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir to God. There's that slave word. Looking back at Moses, because someone like Moses is going to come and set God's people free from slavery and bondage, from the tempter, from sin, unto eternal life. God's son would come so that we can become adopted sons and daughters. It's so beautiful. When we realize who Jesus actually is, that he is eternal, that he has always existed with the Father as God, we start grabbing onto a little bit of how much he loves us. There's an article written called, This is Exactly How Far People Are Willing to Travel for Love. And if you're a romantic, you'd probably say that you're willing to go any distance to find love. But they found an interesting study that when people are doing online dating, many of them won't open up the parameters past 20 miles. Actually, two-thirds of people won't open up the parameters past 20 miles. More than half, more than 61%, say that they will not leave the city that they're living in to meet somebody. We're so fickle. People are like online searching for maybe the, what they might call the one, and they're like, eh, if they're outside the city limits, I'm really not that interested. And yet, look at Jesus. Philippians 2, 3-4. It's talking about us and it's talking about humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look at this. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who is Christ Jesus? Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. How far was he willing to go for love? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God himself loved 
you and me so much that he stepped out of heaven in eternal distance from perfect glory into human flesh who could scrape his knee, who could be derided by people and have his beard ripped out and mocked and beaten and tortured so that he could go to the cross because of his great love for us. Not that we were deserving. We were sinners and rebels in our sin against this God. And yet he comes to us. He traveled a lot farther than 20 miles or outside the city limits. He became flesh for us. And if he himself stepped out of heaven to become flesh, a servant even to die for sinners, how much more should we humble ourselves to treat others with greater honor than ourselves? If the king of creation is willing to make himself low and wash the disciples' feet, including Judas, the betrayer, why do we think so highly of ourselves? to try to put ourselves over other people. Paul is encouraging us that it's time for us to start esteeming others over ourselves. Humility is not thinking less about ourselves. Humility is thinking about ourselves less and thinking about other people more. We need to look around at the people in our lives and start asking some hard questions. Who is the hardest person in my life that it's hard to love? Who is it? If you thought about it, who's the person that you pass in the hallway and you're like, um, no. Or maybe it's when you get home and you can't stand when your mom comes into your room. Or maybe it's that sibling that just grinds you the wrong way. Or maybe it's that social media person that's always blasting your posts. I don't know who it is. Who is in your life that's hardest to love? Because if Jesus can come out of heaven and die for sinners, then he's calling his people to love the unlovable. Who's unlovable in your life? Maybe there's someone right in here right now and you're like, that person annoys me. I sat on this side because of that. Who is it that's hard to love? Because if Jesus, the king of creation, would die for you, why won't you say a kind word or reach out to someone else on an equal level? This is the God we serve. May we serve him by emulating his humility and his love. So just a few things I want to put to rest. We've talked about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus not? And these are a few things I hope that we have, because they're sort of hard words. But don't worry about pronouncing the words. These are some of the things that people have thought about Jesus that scripture has like blown up. The first one is called docetism. And this is held by Gnostics who believe that all matter is evil. They teach that Jesus is purely divine. He's so divine that he only appeared to be human. That when he was walking along the ground, he was like this this holy spirit, this apparition that you couldn't really touch. He was so divine, he couldn't actually become human. Jesus was just a ghost pretending to be human. This was put to death. Jesus was truly God and truly man. He bled. He wept. He hurt. This is called... Eboniatism, eboniatism, and don't forget about it. This taught that although Jesus performed miracles, he was no different than any other human. He was a purely human figure. Adoptionism, adoptionism taught that Jesus was born completely human and God adopted him to be his son and put divinity on Jesus. At Usually they believe that that Jesus received his divinity at baptism and then his divinity abandoned him at the cross so that he could die. Garbage. He was born of a virgin. 
He was Emmanuel at birth, at conception. He was Emmanuel. The angels sang his glory the night he was born. There was never a point that he was anything less than fully and truly God. Arianism. They believe that Jesus was a created being of the Father. That he was God's first creation. Therefore, Jesus is not co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Many times people that follow Arianism believe that Jesus is the one who created, there's like the Father, and then there's sub-level Jesus, and Jesus created the universe, and Jesus had to come to earth because the Father is too holy to go. No, Jesus is co-eternal. He's entirely united with the Father. If we see Jesus, we see the Father. He is not inferior, and he is not a creature. All right, so those are the things Jesus is not. But why did Jesus come? What is his purpose? And I'll give you three, and I'll do it briefly, because I want to get to e-groups. Why did God, as Jesus, come to earth and die? If someone asked you that question, how would you answer? So you're one of those Jesus people. You go to church a lot. So why do you actually think Jesus needed to come and die? How would you answer that question? Let's say that you had to text them back so you could actually think, you know, as you're, as you're writing them back. How would you answer that? What was the purpose of Jesus' coming? And the first one is the most important. The first one is that Jesus came to give God glory. And that was enough. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. We just read this. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's keep going. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did Jesus come? He came so that every tongue and every nation would see that he is God for the sake of glorifying God. That's why he came, for God's glory. And that's a hard verse. A lot of people are like, boy, I don't really believe in stuff in Jesus. I'm a skeptic. I'm an atheist, whatever. But I'm telling you, if you're within the sound of my voice and you're a critic, a skeptic, or you're sitting on the fence, you need to know that wherever you stand or sit in this room, there will come a day that you will confront your creator, the sovereign king of all the universe. And you will see in his undiluted glory who reigns on the throne. And no matter how much of an atheist or how much you think you might hate God, you will see that he is the Lord of all, and you will bow before him. And you can bow before him in terror, or you can bow before him as your father. Oh, that everyone in this room would bow at his feet in love and recognize his presence because you've known him all your life, that you've walked with him since that one day way back in Elevate as a teenager. And now you see him face to face, knowing him as you are known. How beautiful that would be. I hope not one of us encounters a living God in any other way. The second reason that Jesus came is he came to establish God's kingdom. Matthew 16, we just read this. Simon Peter declares, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood haven't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, On this rock, the rock of my identity, the rock of Jesus' identity, he is the Son of God, the Christ. On this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Our Father who's in heaven, may your name be made holy. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Jesus came for God's glory and he came to establish God's kingdom on earth. And number three, Jesus came for our salvation. Not because we were valuable did he die, but because he died for us. He calls us valuable. John three sixteen. Let's start at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. I love this. Right here in the verses, we have Son of Man and Son of God in the same verses. That he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus came for God's glory. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. Jesus came as a rescue mission for his people. Sin came into the world through our rebellion way back when. And Jesus crushes the head of the tempter and defeats sin at the cross when he dies as our substitute. Look at all three in these verses. This is so beautiful. This is a verse worth like writing down, highlight, underline it, write the date. This is so beautiful. John 17, one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, and this is his prayer before he would go to the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There it is for God's glory. Since you have given him all authority over flesh, there's that kingdom, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life, Elevate? What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Arianism, out the door. Jesus was in glory with God before the world existed. Glorifying the Father, kingly authority, and salvation. All right, if I've raised any questions, here's, a, here's something you can chase. Write these words down. Appropriation and mutual interpermeation. Google those words with the Trinity. And they open up a whole new interest in diving into how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are interconnected with each other and operate uniquely and yet wholly at the same time. It's so beautiful. I don't know if you guys saw it, but a handful of years ago, the movie 1917 came out. It's about World War I. Anyone see it? Cool movie. It was meant to be like one straight shot all the way through. And it's about these two soldiers and they're recruited to run a message up to the front lines. The problem is the front line has been instructed to rush into battle. But now command has learned that as they rush into battle, they're going into a trap, a sabotage, and thousands of men are going to die. But they've been cut off. So these two soldiers 
are supposed to run across country as fast as they can to get to that commander and deliver a letter with the seal on it saying, don't go to battle. Hold your men back. It's a trap. Star Wars reference. So these two men head out on this mission. And one of them dies in this really ridiculous way. And this other one, he has to like push through. And he is shot at and he's chased and he's hiding and he's stabbed and he's blown up. And he gets swept away in a river and he goes through all these things. And there's this big climactic moment. He's in the trench. And between him and the commander that he has to get to are all these soldiers. And at the, at the top of this trench is the field that they're to rush out on towards the enemy. And he can't get through to get his commander. And all these soldiers are crouched down and they're ready to go to battle in just a moment's notice. And all these soldiers are going to rush to their death if he can't get past them to the commander. And so this big moment happens where he climbs up on the cliff or on the top of the trench and he starts running across the battlefield and enemy fire is coming at him and suddenly the soldiers are called to charge and they're taking over the trench and so he has fire going from both directions. These soldiers are rushing to their death and he's running between them to try to get to the commander. And finally he plops down and he rushes into the room and he gives them this letter and the commander just chews him out. And it's like this real terrible anticlimactic moment. And yet the commander pulls the retreat, pulls the soldiers back, and thousands of lives are saved. This guy had to go through so much. It's such a fun movie. Go check it out. It's not fun, but it's really interesting. He goes this incredible distance. But think about how much further Jesus went. Think about what he went through for us as he allowed himself to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. Think about what he went through for us as he lived perfectly his whole life, loving his father and loving his neighbor perfectly the entire time. Think about what he went for us, forsaking glory so that he could be abused by the very people he came to save, beaten and tortured and nailed to a cross and whipped almost to death. But bodily torture was nothing compared to the wrath of the Father against sin, where we should have died for our sin, he hung on the cross and endured the Father's wrath, the infinite wrath of God against sin, poured out on his Son, so that all who would believe in Jesus would be saved from God's wrath for eternity. He experienced that for us. He ran across the battlefield. He endured the enemy fire. He delivered millions upon millions of people who would call on him as their Lord and Savior. Recap, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's God's Son, co-equal and co-creator with the Father, and through him we have salvation. Why did he come? To give glory to God, to establish the kingdom of heaven, and as a rescue mission for us. And he defeated sin, death, and the attempter to give us eternal life. How do we, we as mere humans respond to such love? We count others as more significant than ourselves and are more concerned with others' best interests than our own. I want to close with this neat little story. An eight-year-old boy had a younger sister who was dying of leukemia. And he was told that without a blood transfusion, she would die. His parents explained to him that his blood was probably compatible with hers, and if so, he could be the blood donor, eight years old. 
they asked him if they could test his blood. And he said, sure. So they did, and it was a good match. Then they asked if he would give his sister a pint of blood, that it could be her only chance of living. He said that he would have to think about it overnight. The next day, he went to his parents and said that he was willing to donate the blood. So they took him to the hospital, where he was put on a gurney beside his six-year-old sister. Both of them were hooked up to IVs. A nurse withdrew one pint of blood from the boy, which was then put in the girl's IV. The boy lay on the gurney in silence while the blood dripped into his sister until the doctor came over to see how he was doing. Then the boy opened his eyes and he asked, how soon will I start to die? He didn't know at eight years old what it meant. He spent overnight thinking about it because his belief was that he was dying for his sister to give her blood. What kind of God would love us so much as to give his blood for us so that we could know him and have eternal life? That's the ultimate sacrifice. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for what you're doing tonight. Lord, may every heart be open. Let every heart turn towards you. Plant seeds in our hearts that we can't shake, that the enemy can't kick over. The tempter is still at work, and yet you have defeated him at the cross for eternity. Lord, I pray that we have a, we have a June 1st, 2022 reunion in heaven, and every person in this room within the sound of my voice is current and accounted for in heaven. I thank you, Lord, so much for your people. Lord, bless our e-groups. Bless the e-group leaders. Let us have fun and discussion and open up our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.